Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We are highlighting adaptations from Season 9 over at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can purchase the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. We had a big Robin Hood series this season, looking at nine different versions on screen. Many were likely adapted from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, including Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, and the 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. Robin and Marion was specifically based on the ballad, The Jest of Robin Hood. And we really don't have too much to say about Robin and the Seven Hoods. We talked Dead Ringers for our David Cronenberg series adapted from Barry Wood and Jack Geisland's novel, Twins. Have you checked out that show? You know, I haven't, but I've heard great things. Two comedies from our Steve Martin series were adaptations, Pennies from Heaven from the BBC series, and The Lonely Guy from the book by Bruce J. Friedman. The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was part of our Colin Higgins series, adapted from the Broadway musical. Spike Lee brought us Black Klansman from Ron Stallworth's memoir. And we looked at a trio of John Le Carey adaptations, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Plus, all three movies in our Agnieszka Holland series were based on books, Europa Europa, In Darkness, and Spore. La Caja Fall and its remake, The Birdcage, both came from Jean Poiré's original play. We also talked about Arsenic and Old Lace and Charade in our Gary Grant series. All of these were based on other material, and it is all available on our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book purchased supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations we've covered and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals.
tour Eiffel. Entièrement faite avec des allumettes. 346 422 exactement. C'est vous qui avez fait ça C'est une de mes plus belles pièces. J'en tiens. Comment est-il Un champion du monde. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. The dinner game is over. It's time to break out the matchsticks. Un dîner de con. Vous ne connaissez peut-être pas le principe. Chaque invité amène un con. Oui, oui, il est là. Il a une belle tête de vainqueur. Quand on est 20 ans, qu'on soit grand-père, quand on est con. Il s'appelle Juste Leblanc. Ah bon, il n'a pas de prénom. Je viens de vous le dire, Juste Leblanc. Leblanc, c'est son nom et c'est Juste son prénom. Euh, Monsieur Pignon, votre prénom à vous, c'est François, c'est Juste Oui. Eh bien, lui, c'est pareil, c'est Juste. Quand on est con, on est oh, con. On a assez perdu de temps comme ça. Would you be the matchstick guy or the boomerang guy Well, considering my heritage, I'd probably be the boomerang guy. You would be the boomerang guy, of course yes. you would. I, I will say, as the, as the boomerang guy, you know, my experience with boomerangs is I've never been able to throw one that even curves. They always basically go straight, and I don't know what yeah. I'm doing wrong. Yeah, no, that's me too. Mm-hmm. No, I and I think it is, it it stinks. I guess that's a central frustration in this movie, Andy. If we talk about big themes. The dinner, the the dinner game, uh, Francis Ferber uh, series. We're still doing it. Uh, movies and their remakes. And this is. Uh, let me just get this out. Uh, big question: What makes an idiot, Andy? Because mm. in this game, in this movie, we kind of have to understand what culturally makes an idiot to know who to feel bad for. And I think the idiot in every scene is me because. <laughs> I could talk that though that guy's like matchstick buildings were incredible. And also, I like boomerangs. I would love to be able to throw them half as good as he does at, on his like pre-work ritual. Yeah. That right. was fantastic. The rich people who set up this whole dinner game, their idea of these idiots, and I can't wait to talk more about the title, is really <laughs> just people who have a passion for kind of a, a peculiar thing, you know? Yeah. But that's people. It's like everyone has a strange passion about some odd thing that they collect or they uh, make or whatever it is, you know, whether it's, you know, you know, somebody who as a kid really got into wood burning and because their grandpa taught them and now they make wood burning all the time as a hobby or, you know, whatever it is, you know, people who hunt and then make things out of antlers to hold your jewelry. I mean, people make all sorts of crazy things. It's it's. (laughs) It's, the, it's to hold your jewelry that was really specific like almost aspirationally specific and maybe it holds your jewelry and maybe it in and of itself is bejeweled in some sort of fanciful way and maybe it tells the story of alice in one i don't know but maybe that's your thing but maybe it does maybe it does and nowadays i mean geez look at all the people who make videos completely as a hobby just to put on youtube to whether it's film criticism or video game walkthroughs it's it's insane that the number of things that people do and i think that's what this film really was about was about these rich people who didn't really care about anything other than money apparently and Mm -hmm. just kind of used making fun of people as a way to kind of just enjoy things and basically it's like grown-up bullies is what what these guys are exactly what it is 
And if we remember the lessons we learned from be- from being bullied, <laughs> I don't mean to speak for you, man. <laughs> hey, well, what? Huh? <laughs> but if we remember the stories from our schoolyard bullies, uh, the, you know, the bullying comes from a place of great insecurity, and that I think is very much what this movie is talking about. Right? It's the what what happens when confronted with compassion and loss uh, to the people who are bullies and don't know what to do with themselves when they are alone, uh, when they're out of control, when they don't have the resources that they normally count on, like wealth and power and and the the power of influence. Um, I, I think that that's what this movie is about. We watch their lives unravel farcically, but, you know, why does it hurt? Because it's a little bit true, you know? And, mm-hmm. and I think that's um, I think that's that's something that's really special about the movie and and surprising uh, given its setup. Uh, now, I, I know I launched into it because of my rant here, but I have to know, what did you think of it? I really liked it. I thought it was great. I mean, I, I think as a farce, it really works. Um, and I think a movie like this, it's hard to make work when it's not a farce, because I think you take uh, a character like uh, like Pierre Brochant, who essentially is kind of the lead. He's the one driving the story, right? He's the one who needs an idiot for their for the dinner game and mm-hmm. is the one who tracks down Francois. And that's kind of the whole setup. And so you have a character like like Pierre who is so unlikable and is just like his... I mean, he's so unlikable that even his girlfriend leaves him because she just doesn't like him anymore. And he's so unlikable that the reason he has a girlfriend is because he stole her from another guy who's his friend. And it's like, he's just terrible. Like, everything about him is terrible. He's cheating on his taxes. I mean, he's awful all the way through. And I don't think if if this was not done as a farce, I don't think there would be any joy in watching this character or spending time with this character. And by making it so farcical and so big, he really is this big, broad, terrible person. And because of that, it makes it that much easier to kind of go along with him for the run of the film, especially once we meet Francois, who, I mean, he really is the beating heart of the film. And that's that's what makes it uh, really enjoyable is the fact that we really get to enjoy this this character that he brings on as an idiot and and spend time with him and realize, you know, he's actually a much better person than Pierre is. And I think that's what the the farces are going to do. You know, they're going to play with our expectations. They're going to mm-hmm. play with those broad comedic beats and the the big characters and everything. And, and we definitely get it here. It works really well. I, I want to talk more about the relationship with his uh, with his wife uh, before but before we do that, just by way of setup, um, apparently this movie came about because Verber actually read that this game existed in Paris, that this was a real thing. And apparently it's much I, I this was totally news to me. I didn't know that these kinds of games were real, uh, that there were that there's a game that he had read uh, about in uh, here in the United States called The Dogfight. Uh, that was made into a movie that I haven't seen um, uh, by Nancy Savoca, um, where they in fraternities, they'll choose uh, who determines are, quote, the ugly girls. Uh, they don't understand why a handsome man is inviting her to uh, a party. Uh, and then they bring her in. And it's essentially the Carrie story, right? They bring in somebody who's confused about why they're being invo- invited into a social, like a hard to get social sector. And then they're made fun of. Um, and, uh, so then 
this movie exists as a way to deal with essentially this 1% uh, using their power to make fun of those that they clearly don't understand and make them lesser, even though ultimately, um, you know, as you say, this movie is, you know, has its own sort of vindication um, through the eyes of this, the wonderful Pignon. Um, so um, the the relationship, I think I, I want to put a, an anchor in here because it's going to be important to come back to it when we have our conversation next week. And and that is this. The setup between uh, Brochon and his wife is th- their conversation is is kind of gentle. Like she she asks, are you having one of those ridiculous dinners? He says, yeah, they're really fun. You should come. I'm not going to come. I'm going out. And she she leaves, but she doesn't really storm out. Right. She leaves, but she strikes me as frustrated. Right. She strikes me as agitated, perhaps. But I get no sense while she's still in the apartment that she is leaving him for good. And ultimately, the twist comes when we have this answering machine device, which is uh, unique of its time, that, uh, you know, later, uh, Pignon is there and he's holding the answering machine and the phone and it rings and it's her. And she says, I'm leaving you. I don't think I'm ever coming back. Yeah. And and that's the twist, right? Did you get a sense from when she left that this was a potential divorce scenario? No, I I don't I mean, was that a problem for you because I don't think it needed to feel that way. Like no, I, it, Yeah. It it wasn't a problem for me, but the, I the the American remake treats their relationship differently. Well, and I, I, I've seen that. That was the only of our series that I had seen. Yeah. But I don't remember it. <laughs> so I'm really curious okay. to revisit it after watching this one to see, you know, where things go with it. So. Yeah, right. And, and the, I mean, the Paul Rudd character in that movie could not be any different, you know, any more different. Yeah. Uh, apart from, you know, the whole class system, status system, they, they like it is it's a very different context. And I'm I'm really interested in how that compares how what they chose to do here uh, versus what they did there. So I just want to just want to think about that. Their relationship is very, very different. And his reaction to the to losing, and when I say his, I mean Brochon in this case, his reaction to losing um uh Christine is um is one that is I, I think um potentially distinctly French, but also from a position of where he is a predator in a social class in this movie, and Paul Rudd is a predator to be. In, hmm. in the movie next. And that is a huge difference between these movies, the context of these movies and what they chose to do with the remake. And I, I think in terms of movies and the remakes, we, we're going to have to talk about that. Got to start here. So, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I definitely am looking forward to that. Um, and it's interesting that the way that they do construct his character, because, well, I mean, he just seems so terrible, right? I mean, he seems okay when he's with his uh, girlfriend, although is she yeah. a wife? Because she is, she is a wife. She's wife. Yeah, they're yeah. married. Uh, yeah. Because, I mean, he has a mistress. He stole his wife from his friend. Uh, you know, he's cheating on his taxes. Like, he, as as the film progresses, we just learn more and more about this guy that, I mean, maybe it feels decidedly French. As I brought up last week, you know, the French farce generally dealt with um, affairs. You know, it's a pretty common yeah. story element to have. And so I'm like, well, maybe it's not that 
much of a surprise that he has a, a mistress in this particular film, you know, and that's just the, the another element that is kind of just a, a common expectation. I think that it, it works, and again, it it makes him look really bad, but it also makes him look like, you know, he's kind of like this this king of just jerkiness, right? I mean, he's you know he's bragging about all of the stuff, all of his uh, accomplishments, you know, when he's uh, golfing and stuff. He just seems like just a uh, he seems like a big old jerk. He <laughs> he does seem like a big old <laughs> jerk. Well put. Uh, he, he's he's the one, but he's also that. he's also very cool, and he trucks in yeah. incredibly cool things. And his place, his apartment, is super uh, romantic and royal and beautiful. And uh, so, like, he has all the trappings of being awesome, mm-hmm. right? He he is he's the French late nineties uh, ultimate sort of bro bro executive, and um, and and he's a publisher, and he. Is also, as you said, he's a predator, and you don't know that until the movie sort of unravels. And it is it unravels thanks to the um, yeah, I, I I struggle to call it like idiocy uh, of um, you know of the his mark right. In this case, it was uh, uh, Jacques Vire as uh, Francois Pignon, and he's amazing. Uh, he's amazing to watch because he is a guy that you I, I, like. I almost immediately uh, fell for. Like I, I know this guy. Like I know his sort of awkwardness. He, this guy lives inside me a little bit, right? You know. I mean, it's it's uh, a deeply personable uh, kind of character, and it is through his unwitting uh, sort of attempts at trying to be helpful that that Brochon's life falls apart. And therein lies the farce. Yeah, exactly. I mean, everything that happens to him really happens to him because uh, because he's uh, such a jerk, right? Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. that's really you know how things go. I mean, he you know it's all like come up. It's like he's playing golf. He throws his back out, and everything mm-hmm. is just kind of trickle down from there as it gets worse and worse. He goes home. His wife leaves him, or she leaves, and then later leaves him when he's having this guy over, and it just kind of. It just kind of piles on it. And that's, I think, a a great way to really allow the comedy to build smartly by Weber as he's kind of building all of these elements by forcing these two to have to be together, really. Like, Pignon wants to help uh, Brochon out and, and wants to make sure that he's okay and and Brochon needs the help because he can't move. And it's, it's, it ends up playing really well as everything kind of continues and the phone rings and he's, and he has to make these calls and he does this whole thing as the Belgian filmmaker. And it just, I mean, it really worked, uh, I think very effectively in kind of creating this farce and allowing the comedy to come out of this, this painful situation. Tell me a little bit about how the comedy worked for you, because I, I, in terms of setup, there are a number of layers of comedy, but one of the most significant is uh, the language, the use of language. And these turns of phrase that make sense when you hear them in French. And I'm wondering if you felt like you were missing out or if it just was enough to wash over you that, um, um, that, that enough other comedy made sense that you didn't care so much about the language or did well, you get it with the language? Cause there are some that there's sort of makes sense, right? The sort of transliteration. 
I mean, I guess I don't know. I mean, you'd have to give me a specific example. Since I, I don't speak French, I don't know if there was anything that was said that that hit me. Well, because I, I was just what, relying the, on translation. There, on there are gags in there about like um, the mistaken uh, identities. A, a number of the mistaken identities are mistaken because of, uh, and in terms of the sort of intimate, like vaudeville, these classic sort of vaudeville gags are in name recognition, right? When he says, uh, you've, you've got to, you've got to meet my, we've got to call my friend. Uh, his name is Juste Leblanc, right? Mm -hmm. But, but Pignon is sitting there and he says, Juste Leblanc, what is his first name? Right? Mm -hmm. Um, because Juste has other meanings in French. Uh, one of them is fair, right? Uh, equitable. And, that he, if we're having this conversation between these two guys where their relationship is anything but fair or equitable, and they're having an argument over a first name that this guy does not understand is not fair, uh, is an element of comedy in their com in their conversation mm. and and frustration. I think that's funny. Like I I found myself laughing at that <laughs> bit. Um, the the other one that's played a little bit more uh, um, the, directly toward the mistaken identity was uh, Marlene Sasseur. and Sasseur is her last name S A S S E U R, but in French Sasseur means that sister, right? Like oh. that that sister is a that he he thought he was talking to his to the sister yeah, oh right, yeah, right. yeah that's my sister but he uh, unwittingly again reveals that the wife has just left monsieur brochon and he is uh, really struggling and that means that this woman now thinks oh my gosh the door is open i'm going to go get with this guy yeah, right. all because of the the sasur gag there these little things i think verber actually writes very well for this sort of farce. And I think he directs it very well for this sort of farce. I found myself right in with it. I, I wanted more of it and I wanted to understand more of it. Uh, I found myself like I was just I thought it was great. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, you know, the the that sister joke that was in the subtitles and that. So I kind of got that one. You know, mm -hmm. as it as it kind of read, as far as the the just like I can't remember how that came across in the subtitles, but I, I don't recall it being as funny, perhaps because I did lose that. Yeah, the actual it was in quotes. Language. I yeah. think. I mean, they kept saying "just" is "just" to just quotes. Right, like, right. and and I don't. I think it 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 flushed some of the humor. Yeah. And, you know, that's always going to be the danger in this sort of comedy when you have that. I mean, it's, it's even in the title, right? I mean, yeah. Le Dina de Con, which is, I mean, you know, there was a great article that The Guardian put out uh, when they were reviewing this film, and they spend several paragraphs talking about it and how, uh, here, let me just read this this little bit. The subtitles for this movie try variously fool, idiot, and a-hole. Not entirely evasions these by any means, but neither do they come to the point. Uh, you know, and I think, you know, they, he says, where's the other thing here? He says, uh, he's talking about uh, Sartre and how um, in Waiting for Godot, Beckett's English version has the line, and I don't know how to say this, Le Gens sont le con, rendered as people are bloody ignorant apes. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> which I guess they said. But then there's also a C word, I will just say. I guess we can just call it the old see you next Tuesday, um, <laughs> which I think is funny because I didn't even realize that that joke came from that word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
I was like, oh, so that's why that's it. Uh, John Landis uses it in all of his films because he thinks it's a funny joke. Yeah. So anyway, but uh, says, but that's not quite right either. It's direct aggression for so many. The terminus of the insult line does not generally yeah. convey the distinctively comic sense of con and the sense in which it is used in Le Dinner de Con. Here it is the tone of exasperation, of despair, of abject and impotent complaint that people can be so stupid together with an outraged suspicion that their stupidity must have an element of semi-intentional malevolence for which simple rational decent decency demands a rebuke so i think that that's i mean it's it's amazing that that word allows for like such depth and different ways to kind of just see it and i think that's the danger of doing some remakes in different languages with films like this that it's it's hard to necessarily fully translate that. And I mean, I don't think I lost a lot of laughs from some of those other lines, but it's definitely a language movie. And it's like trying to, you know, I, I mean, imagine trying to put subtitles on Woody Allen or or other, you know, writers who are very specific in the language they write in and how complicated it is to to translate some of those plays on words. Yeah, I I remember when we watched I watched this with a with an old French teacher and uh, who who had lived in France for many years and I did not did not live in France for long enough to really internalize, you know, the slang. Uh, but uh, one of the notes that he gave me about this was that that word in particular, um, if you are French, native French, or have spent a long time there, and you get it, and you hear how people talk to one another. I mean, I I remember like hearing it and using it on the beach in my study abroad time. And it was just kind of you start naturalizing to it. And the only literal translation, that's the only thing I was capable of is literal translation is just a hole like you just that's what it is. But for the French, uh, that word almost immediately sort of transcends the boob, right? The, mm-hmm. the sort of nabob uh, and directly applies to both men. in this movie equally. And I think that is uh, the real uh, gift of that word in particular, that bit of slang, that you know who it's talking about. It's talking about all of them. Mm-hmm. One of them, it's the the gentle boob who's just trying to make it make do in the world. The other is a guy who truly is an a-hole and he's he's taking advantage. Right. And the word sort of applies equally. Uh, but I think that's fascinating. It'll be an interesting conversation to continue next week. When we look at dinner for schmucks and how how that translation and that word choice, <laughs> what it does yeah. in context makes, of that film, <laughs> it's it's opinionated. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about the the adaptation of his play uh, because this movie I think is is a solid uh, presentation, certainly. Which yeah, I I, I don't know when it first. Um, started as a play but um do, did you find when 93? it was 93 okay i'm yeah. gonna say 93 early 90s yeah yep and 90s. and it was a successful play it was, i mean i i think that's where uh jacques villeray started in right yeah he played yeah. he owned the role he played it 600 times so i mean that speaks to uh, a lot about why he works so well in the role. And I think that speaks a lot to why this film is so taut. I mean, it just feels from beginning to end like there's just no fat. Even when we're not in the one-act play portion of it, which is which is Brochon's house, when we're kind mm-hmm. of 
with him on the golf course or, you know, meeting some of the, these other schmucks or when his um, idiot finder bumps into um, Pignon on the train. You know, there are these different elements that we have, but it always is just an incredibly tight just run the way that it's constructed. And that's something that really struck me with how how well it came across this translation from the stage to this. It just it was just incredibly um just well constructed and um moved brilliantly. I I was I was struck by the feeling that this is a movie that absolutely feels rehearsed and and I think that that comes from uh, you know, the uh, VRA's um, practice in the role on stage. And you sort of note uh, just how secure he feels in playing this particular role mm, yeah. uh, and just how confident and just how, you, as you said, it's taught. But it, it, it just feels well-read, well-worn and natural in, in a way that I think is sometimes hard to, to play. You watch, um, you know, you get the same feeling when you watch uh, like Noises Off and you see the characters who have embodied the, the play before they were in the, the film, right? You, you get a sense of, of how those, uh, how, how the, they're able to sort of naturalize those characters. And I think you really get it with this one. And it's a very complicated uh, sort of emotional role Role to to take on right a cloak to wear uh, where you you have to sort of be this this innocent uh, this sort of victim and it, you know in control at the same time I think that's but um, it's it's very challenging and and uh, Jacques is a is a, uh, a stalwart in French comedy I mean he's he's a very well known uh, actor over there and uh, incredibly popular. Although only because of this, like this is, or at least in film, this is really yeah. what brought him to the screen in a big way. He had been in smaller roles and stuff uh, for quite a while, but this was the film that really like all of a sudden everyone's like, oh, he's just brilliant. And sadly, yeah. he only lived, I, I think, like seven years um, after this. Yeah. And then he ended up uh, ended up dying shortly after, which was uh, which was sad. It's the I, I read one. I can't find the tab, but it was the it it's the the French comedic Hamlet role, right? Like if you're going to play the dinner game, um, mm. this is this is a role to play. Yeah, uh, as you're coming up. Right, right. Yeah, definitely. I I had this memory of the film that um, we spent a lot of time at the dinner. Like I have these yeah. memories, these like flashes of the other guests. And I thought, well, surely I'm going to go and watch this movie. And most of the movie is going to take place at the dinner. And I guess I just can't remember a lot of the specific gags. Oh, well, I guess I'll sit down to watch it. I think there were, I, I mean, if you can count in seconds, that's generous in terms of time at the <laughs> dinner. Like, really, we get flashes of what's going on at the dinner, some cutaways during a phone call. But most of the movie doesn't take place at the dinner at all, right? It's just in their house as they're either trying to get to the dinner or as the world falls apart around them. What do you think it would have been like to be at the dinner? Did you have any expectation that you would go to the dinner in a movie called The Dinner Game? I did. I mean, I absolutely did. And and perhaps that's because of Dinner for Schmucks. But again, my memory of that isn't that great. And so I'm like, do we go to the dinner in that film? Because in my head, I thought we do, but maybe we don't. So now I just don't know. So now I'm actually, as much as I, my memory serves, I didn't care for it that much. I am curious to revisit it because I, I'm like, I wonder if they actually did that where they, 
and we talked about this a bit last week, how the birdcage was kind of such a direct remake of La Caja Fall. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of an older way of doing remakes and how remakes nowadays have really come with this whole notion of kind of throwing a twist in, doing something different and telling the story in kind of a slightly different way, whatever it is going to be. And so now I'm curious to see, is Dinner is dinner for Schmucks going to be a direct remake of the dinner game or is it going to be something where they throw some twists in like we have more time at the dinner, we spend more time before, you know, outside of all of this with these characters to get to know them. I, like, where where are they going to add the fat to kind of do that? So I'm curious to see what what yeah. happens with that one. We do get uh, some, some interesting things that I think are unique to the film, uh, visual tricks and things. And you made a note that I, I just spaced making, but I was, I remarked on it while I was watching it, which is that of our introduction to the tax inspector. What a great character, and it's it's not quite the introduction, but it's when he's heading over to uh, to Brochon's house, and I think this is the point where he and his. It's interesting how when he brings Just over, we we learn that Just was you know the man who Brochon stole uh, his Christine from, and now he is married to Christine, and he's concerned that Christine went back to Just, but he didn't, but Just and he are still friends, and Just comes over to help him out. Very odd, the way that that all works out. I'm like, that's an interesting friendship right there. But I, I, uh, when they realize, you know, that a tax inspector is coming over to his house, and they basically go into panic mode and start hiding everything because he's been... Uh, cheating on his taxes for years. And so he's hiding all of his paintings and he's basically hiding everything. And we get this this cutaway to the tax inspector, just hilariously played by Daniel Provost, uh, as he's like driving over. And the music, great comedy music in this film. It has like this little hint of the Jaws theme, the way that he's like charging over there, like hunting. And then we go into the car and it even cuts to a shot of the tax inspector inspector, as he turns and looks directly into the lens in like this threatening way, like he is this shark out to hunt these guys. I was like, that was that was a great, clever comedy direction moment by Weber that we had here. I think so, too. It took me right out of the film in just the right way. Yeah. Uh, You know, that just let me let me remind you with a sledgehammer to the head exactly (laughs) what you're in for it right now. We're going to have we're going to have some fun. And I think it's it it was beautiful and it pays off so wonderfully, Uh, you know, in terms of stacking of chaos in this movie. I think it is it starts out with this sort of gentle nod to chaos and then the wife leaves and then we find out she's not coming back. And then, uh, you know, he's the the back thing gets worse, not better. And they have all sorts of, of of problems with the doctor and they have problems with the sister that sister uh and and then the tax inspector comes over and uh and and starts sort of poking sniffing at all of the holes on the wall where the paintings came down and you see the disruption <laughs> of dust on the on the tables where knickknacks have been taken away only to see that quintessential comedy moment when he opens the wrong door looking for the bathroom and priceless paintings and doodads just pour out of this room uh it's just our room of totally cheap and nonsense things don't worry 
And then, don't worry, you're going to be audited. You'll be hearing from me right after discovering that now his wife is having an affair. Uh, right. It, it's just that that stacking of chaos, I think, is done really expertly in this movie. Yeah, it, it does. It just kind of flows from piece to piece. And that's where I think Weber really shines, is, is finding ways to make the comedy in these moments keep building. And I think it works really well in the dinner in La Caja Fall. And it works really well throughout this film, which is essentially this big dinner as, as things kind of continue happening. And, uh, you know, whether it's Pignon telling the, the woman outside, you know, mistaking the wife for the, for the girlfriend and how everything's okay now, or, or, you know, just, I mean, it just kind of continues, like everything keeps going. And, and I think that's what makes it so funny is it just it it does keep building and i think weber is is pretty expert with that yeah the end the climax of the film uh the two sit down to dinner um are or they sit down to snack i guess uh in the apartment pinon has just made a valiant effort to to reach out to christine and say you know what, this guy, he was a jerk, but I've seen him pour his heart out for you, and you, you ought to give him a chance. And she says, I'll think about it, and and it's great. Hangs up the phone. Brochon is now deeply moved at this, the, the, the only time that Pignon has been able to hold his tongue on the phone throughout the last hour and a half that we've been with him. Uh, and they sit down gently to dinner, and it, it's like it sort, sort of resolves and Brochon says, you know what, next time you'll take me to dinner, I'll be the idiot, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that you, you feel like it's going to just take off. And I, my first thought is, is that enough? Is that enough vindication for him? And then the phone rings. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> it's, well, and it's, it's great it, because, I mean, here's the thing. If it ended that way, I would have been like, boy, it got a little treacly. Right yeah. here at the end, like to take a farce and all of a sudden it's it's kind of like going down this this maudlin road where, you know, I did this for you. I know you're a terrible person, but I couldn't let you hurt and I wanted to help you and all this. It's like, wow, that's really generous after everything that you'll still do all of this. And then, you know, and then he kind of, uh, you know, Brochon acknowledges that he's the, he's the jerk and everything. I'm like, this is pretty... This could be a little too much. And then we go into the phone call. And I'm like, okay. So we still, we kick it up by adding that in there. And that's what we, I think, needed to have it end that way. Right, right. This And and just to fill in the blanks, if you don't remember, it's the phone call. It's the wife calling back and, and uncovering that, in fact, uh, Pignon was lying. And he wasn't, you know, he wasn't outside on the street, that he was right next to Brochon. And she had already decided that Brochon was feeding him lines. Right. And now this just, for her, it just uncovered another lie after lie. And the relationship between these two gentlemen starts to unravel again. And we we stop on a freeze of them, like, pointing at each other. Right. And, um, and, and I think it's, uh, it works at just the right level for a sort of aggressively farcical climax to the film or end of the film and we don't need to go past it right i mean that's that's what i think works really well for this is you get out in the middle of a comic beat just i mean it's not really going to matter we know that these are these guys and and it's just going to play out and that's that's the way it goes and that's fine we just don't need that give us the laugh we have that last little twist and then we're out of there i think that is really effective way to tell the story now, we didn't have any direction of 
Ferber last time. Correct. Now we do. I mean, he had been directing for a little while. You know, I, back when we were looking at La Caja Fall last week, he was pretty much known as just a writer. And, um, but I mean, a very prolific writer. He'd done a lot of uh, films and, and uh, he had done plays and a variety of different things. Um, and I think that giving him the opportunity to direct back in the, I mean, in the 70s, really, he started before La Caja Fall with The Toy, which was remade with Richard Pryor. Uh, and then uh, he did a number of other ones, including his own remake of one of his own films before getting to this in 98. So, and he's been directing all the way up through, I mean, it's been 2008 was the last time that he had directed, but, you know, he's, he's, I, I, I think largely he's probably, I guess I'd say he's retired. And uh, I think he's just, you know, I, I think he had a, a good hand at uh, writing and directing, but I, I've only seen the English remake of Three Fugitives that he directed. I don't think I've seen anything else that he has actually directed other than this now. Mm -hmm. There are some that I'm interested in, and I have a strong feeling about some of these movies. Like, they're really good. And yet, why uh, do I look at the list of his of, of some of his other films? Like, what what would make me want to sit down and watch Tetois? Um, it, it looks not great. I think you could make the same case with uh, Le Dinner Faucon, uh, um, because why would I want to sit down and watch that? I'm deeply glad that I have that in my catalog, but it, it's not uh, it's not a good shelf sale. What is Tetois? What? Where is that one? That's Jean Renault and Gerard Depardieu uh, from 2003, and I find it such oh, a puzzling. That's funny because uh, you said Tetois, and I'm like, I don't see that on his list because on IMDb it's listed as Ruby and Quentin. Yeah, yeah. That's See, that's was... another one. When you look at slang in his titles, um, Tetois means shut up. And, oh, okay. Uh, like, shut your mouth. And that that's probably much more attuned to the spirit of the film than Ruby and Quentin. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it just doesn't do much for me. I'm very curious about that that sensibility that that uh, about that shelf sale for his stuff because I think in terms of his writing I think he's he's right up there in terms of writing comedy it's he's a strong taught writer and knows how to tell the jokes and um, you know granted we lose some not being a native speaker but I I still. Like, I have no problem with the physical comedy. I have no problem with the situational comedy uh, that he brings to the table. It feels uh, like it's, it is telling a complex cultural relationship uh, in, in the eyes of otherwise, you know, simple gaffes. And I, I think that's, um, I think it's great. Well, and clearly, just, I mean, writing and directing, just the way that he tells his stories and the way that he constructs them, I think that there's, a lot to be said for why so many uh, filmmakers want to kind of take his stories and do their own versions of them in English, right? I mean, I mm -hmm. think that there's a big thing about, you know, why Ivan Reitman chose to direct a remake, uh, Jay Roach, um, you know, why these different people come on board to, to take on. I mean, um, it's, I mean, geez, going all the way back to, uh, like, Richard Donner doing the toy, and, um, oh, who was it who did Buddy Buddy? Um, it was... Uh, uh, Billy Wilder. Yeah, Billy Wilder. Yeah. Right, so a lot of big names were drawn to 
the way that he would tell stories. So we'll talk more about that next week. But I, I yeah. definitely think that there's something to be said for just a Francis Weber French comedy. And now, I mean, you know, The Man with One Red Shoe, <laughs> that's very <laughs> much a guilty pleasure of mine. I haven't put it on their guilty pleasure list uh, because I was torn if we were going to end up putting it on this list. I, I think... It, well, it's interesting because we can. T- I just want to bring this up real quick. We looked at a lot of these other options for Francis Weber to do on this, on this uh, Francis Weber and his remakes series. But unfortunately, a lot of the French versions of these movies are not like it's not easily available over here in the states, and so it's really disappointing because I've never seen the tall blonde man with one black shoe that the man with one red <laughs> shoe is based on. Like a lot of these, I've never seen the French version of. I've only seen the kind of rougher English versions. And it's just, you can't find those French versions. And it's very frustrating. Uh, I think the toy was on our list, but, you know, we couldn't track down the French version of that. And so, are you, Do you find yourself more intrigued to explore the French versions, to f- track down those French versions now that we've played with uh, these two? I definitely want to. I mean, I, I feel like I'd rather just go through and watch all of the French versions of all the films, not necessarily the the English remakes, but I'm really curious about what his stories were in French and and to see kind of why they were so attractive for um, Hollywood filmmakers to jump on board and do some remakes of. Me too. I think going forward, I'd be much more interested to just do a series on his works and not, not yeah. bother with these with the remakes anymore. Uh, it's, it's Except for the man with shoe, but eventually Except we'll talk one. about that one because that will end up in a guilty pleasure series oh, at yes. some point. It will be mine. Oh yes, it will be mine. All right. Oh man, yes. Uh, anybody else in the cast you wanted to make sure we point out? I think we talked about everyone. Uh, uh, that yeah, I mean, we didn't mention. I don't even know how to say the actor's name who played Pierre Brochon. Um, it looks oh, like a very is, French name. It's very French, and I can't. I mean, I theory, I, the, it, theory, theory limite, limite, yeah, something limite. like that. It's like missing an apostrophe, right? There should be. It feels like there should be an apostrophe in there somewhere. Right, right. But I think he was great as Pierre Brochon. Like he carried that arrogance brilliantly in the film. Yeah, and him and Jacques Villeray paired together. I thought that was just really nice. The rest of them, I mean, Daniel Provost as the as the tax inspector, I mean, he was just flat out great. And Catherine Fraught as as Marlene, I really thought she did a great job too. Like I think all of them really carried their roles pretty well. Alexandra Vandernoot as Christine, I thought she was fine. I mean, she she unfortunately is kind of just the serious uh, the wife who's just put out, and so she doesn't have a lot of uh, parts. Yeah, she's like gone so heavy quickly. Things. Yeah, but I think you know we see her three times in the film. Yeah. I think she does a fine job. So hey, yeah, she, I think that they all. I want to ask you something, well. Brochon, because uh, you know we mentioned Gerard Depardieu in the 2003 Tetois, but uh, Depardieu has been working with and in the films of um, uh, Weber v- Weber for years. I mean, since Le yeah. Chevre in 1981. I think that's the first one. And um, he and so he's been in, I think, one, two, three, four, what is that, five, uh, five films. And he was actually considered for the role of Brochon in terms of our armchair recasting efforts. Can you see him? I mean, yes, I can. This would be 1998 Depardieu. 
Okay. Now I need My, to. That's so green this is card-ish. Like green card was early '90s. Cyrano is later '90s. Yeah. Okay. I feel like I my read of Depardieu from American films is generally he's a nicer guy, and and the thing I think that came across for me uh, with uh, with Thierry Lermite is that he just reeked of arrogance, and you know I don't know if he's just acting that or if he just kind of carries some of that in his suave and debonair style, you know, like I don't know, but I think that he worked. He just he had a natural fit for the role well i got it for you because it's the man in the iron mask that is the year same year oh okay gotcha gotcha. so suddenly uh i can i can see it as i look through i just scroll through but again he just seems too nice he seems too nice but you can't think of green card depardieu right you got to think of swashbuckling with a sword like i'm a cool guy i'm porthos yeah, but he's the, he's lover. He was the lover. He was always like, yeah, with all the women. I guess you don't think fit. this dude is the lover, Pierre Brochon? You he's don't. He's the think? lover, but he's the arrogant guy who doesn't care about like anything else. Like I, I don't know. I just <laughs> okay. don't see that. I'm not defending him. <laughs> Believe me, I'm being painted into a corner here. <laughs> all right. Uh, the the other this one, guy feels like a politician. Yes, that's that is I, I buy that. That's that's yes. all right. We already talked about uh, Francis Huster uh, as Just LeBlanc, which was he's yeah. terrific. I love how he gets up laughing at the pain that's of his great, friend. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, camera Luciano Tavoli. I think it worked well. It was I mean, I, I don't think there was anything very flashy. And, and I think in comedy like this, you want to keep it pre- either. It has to be really like Edgar Wright over the top camera work or the camera just has to be non-existent uh, or i don't say non-existent but invisible because you want to let the comedy come out yeah and so i think it was the latter which he's, was fine he's got uh, 86 credits he's done a lot of stuff um busy 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 guy and still uh, sounds like still grinding uh up through shorts in 2017 2019 still around really? yeah wow nice nice body of work I did mention the music. Um, Vladimir Kozma does the music. And I think that sometimes comedy music can be really difficult because there's this level of of kind of just kind of fun and silliness that needs to come through. And it works really well here. Like when I, I mentioned that faux Jaws theme that plays a little bit when the tax inspector is coming over. Just allowing for moments like that to pop up in it just gives the humor that little oomph that it needs to just become that much greater. And so I think that he worked really effectively writing the music for this film. I, I do too. I think it was charming and and uh, fun and just sort of frivolous in, in all the right way. Um, and it's, you know, I don't know that I I can place any singular theme uh, in my head right now. There wasn't, it, that didn't feel necessarily iconic. Well, you know, uh, but I was but, humming it when the movie ended. No, oh, were like, you? Like, yeah, because oh, it, well, it ends on the theme and you're playing it. And so I'm like, okay, so I walked around humming it for like a half hour. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it left <laughs> oh, well. me then, but, but I mean, he's, I mean, he's a composer. He's been working with, uh, with and on Weber projects since, uh, since the early beginnings. I mean, since, I mean, he did Tall Blonde Man with One Black Shoe in 1972. Yeah. So, He's been he he has a sense of the comedy. I think. Did you line up all the sequels, remakes uh, beyond the one Oof. we're talking about? It sounds like there's quite a list. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, the dinner dinner for schmucks is an adaptation of the story. But beyond that, I mean, there was, I think, looking at the play, I mean, obviously, it came from a play. Then an English version of the play was created a few years after this. And that was actually titled See You Next Tuesday. So there you go. <laughs> you get the uh, get that right in the title. You had, there's a Hindi version called Beja Fry that came out in 07, a, uh, a Kannada movie, uh, which is Indian. It's the Dravidian language. So uh, there was a Hindi and a Kannada version of it in 2008. There was um, obviously Dinner for Schmucks. We'll be talking about that next week. That came out in 2010. A Chinese remake in a stage show in 2010 also. A Malayalam movie in 2010. There was a a movie in Prague made um, shortly after that. Um, And then there was another version and a Greek version of the play in 2016. So just like version after version keep coming out. And uh, it just, uh, yeah, it's interesting to see that I think it speaks to why Weber's comedy, it's just, it's a broad style of comedy that I think attracts people and people want to keep retelling the stories. Did they want to keep retelling the stories and take away all of the uh, awards from this movie like or or does this get to keep the credit it gets some awards yeah five wins four other nominations at the cesar awards which are the french oscars it was nominated for six and it won three of those. Um, Jacques Villeray won for Best Actor. Daniel Prevost for our, our tax, tax Inspector. He won Best Supporting Actor. Francis Weber won Best... It's interesting. The Screenplay Award is Screenplay Original or Adaptation. I guess they just lump it all in with one. Mm. He won for that. Uh, Catherine Fraught was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, but she lost to Dominique Blanc in Those Who Love Me Can Take the Train. Likewise, Weber was nominated for Best Director, but lost to Patrice Chero for the same film. And the film itself was nominated for Best Film, but lost to The Dream Life of Angels, which is a film I know I've seen, but I don't remember anything about it. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it fared well for a comedy. Well, then, for a comedy, how did it hold up at the box office? Well, this first adaptation of Weber's play cost 12.5 million euros or 14.5 million dollars to make. That is about 22.8 million in today's dollars. The movie premiered in France April 15th, 1998 and became the highest grossing French film in France that year and was the highest, second highest grossing film overall just behind Titanic. Here in the States, the film was released July 9th, 1999 in a limited theatrical release opposite American Pie, Arlington Road, and Genghis Blues. It earned just over $4 million domestically, just over $53 million in France, and $8.2 million in the rest of the world, giving it a grand total of $102.7 million in today's dollars. It was a great success with an adjusted profit per finished minute of almost a million dollars. Another great turnout for Vapor's adaptations. That's fantastic. And isn't it even more fantastic that a movie like this would open opposite American Pie? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, right. How funny is that? Well, (laughs) sadly, I saw American Pie in theaters at Arlington Road. (laughs) I did not see this. I I really wish that I saw this in theaters. I could imagine it would be a great... Oh, it'd be a, a great, great watch. It'd be a great yeah. watch. For all those who love to read their movies, we yes, salute indeed. you. 
Uh, well, this is a great watch, Andy. I'm glad we certainly glad we've checked it off our list and your list, and um, uh, glad to have talked about it. Now we have to go to the mat. Yes, we do. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all of the movies that we have talked about on this very show. And uh, if you swipe over in your show notes and tap the word flick chart, it will take you straight to this movie where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up against ours. First up, The Dinner Game or In Darkness. I actually came up against this one, too, and I said The Dinner Game. Uh, yeah, I uh, will definitely say The Dinner Game. It's uh, There's something joyful about this one that In Darkness <laughs> doesn't bring. There's less joy. It does. I mean, you, there's happiness in the end. Yes. The Dinner Game or Do the Right Thing. I, I think I'm going to have to go with Spike, but I could, I in a surprise move, I could be swayed. Yeah, I, I have to say Spike, but um, the dinner game, I would, I'd put it on first. There's, there's just a lot of easy laughs with that one. Yeah. Do the right things. Just a, it's a tougher film, but it's, I think it's the better film. Okay. The, the dinner game or targets. The dinner game. Wow. I'll say the dinner game as well. The dinner game or judo. Oh. Curse us and our exceptional list of prior films. That's right. I'm going to say the dinner game. Me too. The dinner game or thank you for smoking. Thank you for smoking. Oh, yeah. Got to say Francis. thank you for smoking. Sorry, the Francis. Din- <laughs> the dinner game or Scarlet Street. I think I would put the dinner game on. I know it's Scarlet Street. What are you going to do? I'm going to say the dinner game also. <gasps> I know. The dinner game or Ronin. Oh, nuts. I gotta say Ronan. Really? Yeah. I did not see that coming. Ugh. I'm gonna say Ronan. Woof. That's a tough call. It really is. The Dinner Game or Planet of the Apes. You gotta go with the apes. Planet of the Apes over the Dinner Game? 100%. The original Planet of the Apes? 100%. Every time. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, the Dinner Game. What? Are you serious? I'm this serious. This is the original... 1968, Planet of the Apes. I'm not, I'm just saying, it's it's worth tossing it up. Wow. All right. You well, are, I mean, you're you're 100%. I am not at 100%. I can, right, be, I I can be swayed, and I will not be crushed if I lose. If you lose, you have much more at stake, because you said 100%. That's right. I know. All right. I put it there, didn't I? <gasps> One. All right, here we go. One, two, two three. three. Paper. Rock. Oh. Look at all Dinner the game steak. Takes it. Look at all the steak. Uh, well, luckily, they were close, so it doesn't matter. Dinner game is <laughs> in spot 132 on our chart. Planet of the Apes, 133. <laughs> okay. so. Worth it. I don't care, Andy. It was worth it. <laughs> that puts the dinner game at about a, uh, what percent is that? It's about a 71% on our chart. All right. Uh, three and a half stars. All right. Three and a half stars. I can take that. I uh, I, I had an easy time uh, ranking this one on this end, and I'm, I don't know. I think I might be right in line with it. Uh, we'll see. How to do on your list? Uh, it did uh, better on my list. 543 out of 43.44 or an 88%. Oh, it did much better on your list. I'm, I think I'm yes. closer to where you are in, in spirit than I am in ranking. Uh, came out at 
347 out of 1449, that is a 76%. Or if I'm to go by the algorithm over at letterbox.com slash the next reel, it should be a four star. I was leaning toward four and a half. I had, yeah, I had not, I had never ranked this. This was an, a first ranking for me. So four and a half. Okay. Yeah, so I think I'm good with four and a half. Are you, where are you? That's where I am. Four oh, and a half. Cal Supreme. Four and a half and a heart. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed this. I I find it hard to find many faults in it. I, I think that they just it was such a tight, uh, well constructed comedy. I mean, I, I'm I'm tempted to push it all the way up, but I feel like you know there were a few things in it. I'm like, eh, I'm not quite 100 percent sold on it being quite that quite that strong. But I, I'm I'm very comfortable with four and a half. Yeah, I'm I'm wondering what those things are because I I can't think of them. And we just talked for an hour about this movie, and I can't remember any of the bad things. Well, see, this is why I don't like your, you know, where did the stars fall? <laughs> because I'm like, I, I don't think that's always the case because I'm like, I just don't feel it's a five star film. And I think I'm OK with that. I, but I don't feel like any stars fell. I just don't think it was made at a five star level. Well, I'll tell you where it fell for me. I think now that I now that I say that out loud, my one challenge with it was the end. I don't think it was as a committal of an, a, a committed end to the, the sort of um, to the buildup of the story that we just had. I, I wanted to see more uh, uh, more at the end than that that phone call in the freeze. I think that's that's where yeah. I, I okay. shave off a star. And it was at the bitter end of the movie. So I can feel comfortable right. saying it was a five-star film up to the very end. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, there you have it. So we've already kind of dropped the the lead on this. Where do we go from here? Yeah, we're going to be jumping to Jay Roach's remake of this film as Dinner for Schmucks from 2010. I am uh, I, I remember not liking this when it came out, and I'm curious to revisit it now, especially having just watched this one to see how they compare. So it will be an interesting step back into that one i already did it no oh, okay. all i have to say is it's it's really american yeah <laughs> well I guess, I'm, I'm, I guess that's the limit of my commentary right now yeah uh, well i'm curious because um i feel like there is a big step in how they do the remake as far as how they change the story up, so that's that's what I'm most curious about. Uh, curious about how how the expansion happens because my recollection is there was a lot more to the story. Yep, 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 so, yep. Well, it'll be a good and, talk. And uh, yeah. until then, I think you know the drill, Andy. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andrew. Eh, sometimes. Yeah, sometimes it does. Well, it didn't for you. I, I got lucky. I, I, uh, mine's a little long, though. So do you want me to open with it? Do you want to do it? What do you want to do? A long one. I'll just, uh, I'll just jump in then and I'll go fast. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I've got a Spanish one, Pete. All right. It's not a great review, but there's one thing that, that really I'm intrigued by. So okay. this is the review. Meh. It doesn't seem to me that the humor is aged particularly well, but it shows. What I find interesting is that in Spanish, meh apparently translates. <laughs> so meh 
There you go. It's it's a universal word it's a universal for general disappointment. Uh, okay. Me, All right. No me parece que el humor haya envejecido <laughs> especialmente bien, pero de se deja ver. That's awesome. There you go. Yeah. I just I love that. Me. I uh, I have one. It's a three star over on Amazon from I Choose Light, and it's actually a two part review. Uh, looks like the first part is the adult, uh, and the second part is the adult's eleven year old reviewing the film they watched together. Oh, are you okay. ready? All right. I am. Part the first. Sorry, but I didn't get the point. So the honest small guy decided to throw in a lie to help out the liar, upon which the sophisticated liar confessed to be the real idiot. Then the small guy picked up the phone. The lie was exposed, so he became the idiot again. So who's the idiot? I'm sure it isn't you with all the five stars. They're making sure of that. I guess I'm just going to be myself and appeal for us idiots. I used to live in Europe. Watching this movie made me more thankful I don't have to live in Europe anymore. A very good movie in revealing the corruption of European society or the idiocy of the upper class. The slapsticks are lame and truly idiotic. My 11-year-old kept laughing about the carousel joke. Really, it being a French movie makes people excuse the obscurity of real humor. Some Somebody compared it to Peter Sellers' comedies. I have all of his films. None can be compared to this garbage. As far as gender, it should be in the mockery section. P.S. So what about the wife, the girlfriend, or the inspector? Do I have to write the script for that? Smiley face, smiley face. Part the second, the 11-year-old's review. This movie is hilarious. I was laughing on full power as I watched the little guy making mistakes like putting alcohol in the eggs. Or never left the other guy alone and always tried to help him. This was even funnier than my other kids' movies like Cats and Dogs or Furry Vengeance. I guess for adults it's stupid, but for kids it's funny. The ending was a bit sad, but it still was a brilliant movie. The best comedy. You know, I think I saw Funnier Than Cats and Dogs on the movie poster. I think it was. I'd see it again and again. I'm going to mark that helpful. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>